Al Jazeera Podcasts. I do not think that as someone who never came from that part of the world, how can I possibly have the right to go and live there if someone indigenous to that land whose family was driven from there does not have that right? Taking center stage today is Daniel Levy, president of the U.S. Middle East Project and a former Israeli negotiator with the Palestinians at Taba during Prime Minister Ehud Barak's leadership and at Oslo B under Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. In today's episode, he tells us about the failed peace initiatives during the past three decades, the right of return for Palestinians forcibly displaced in the Nakba, as well as the weaponization of anti-Semitism by Israel and the West. Welcome, Daniel. Good to see you. Good to see you in person, Doreen. Are we further away from a political solution now than ever before when it comes to Palestine? Look, your experience uh, working on this issue as an Israeli peace negotiator, we just heard during Taba as well as the Oslo Accords in 1995, might give you some insight as to where things stand right now. But before you answer that, Give us some background about how you actually became an Israeli peace negotiator. I'll tell you a story. Please do. Because it's very happenstance in the first instance. I'm a Brit by birth. I moved to Israel. I'm now a dual national. Every Jew in the world has this right to take up Israeli citizenship. Maybe we'll come back to that. I'm serving in the Israeli military. My commanding officer calls me in and says, I'm being transferred to a new position. We have the negotiations. This was Oslo B, 1995, um, with the Palestinians. I need a lawyer on the team with me. You're a lawyer, right? I say, no, I'm not a lawyer. I, uh, my degree was in social and political science. But you speak good English. Yeah, I got a degree from Cambridge University. My English is really quite good. Um, but when it comes to drafting, I'm okay. He goes, I need you, come with me on the team. That's how I first become, and this was on, at the time of Rabin, in a very junior capacity. Uh, then I'm a political appointee during the period of the Ehud Barak government working with the justice minister in the, in the negotiations. Right. Look, for anyone who's kind of followed your trajectory and follows you now online and reads your articles and listens to your interviews, they would say there's been a change over the years, right? You speak for Palestinians now. You're critical of the Israeli government policies. Was there a turning point? Was there a shift to allow that to happen? I think life is a journey. We, we, we learn as we go through life. I always believed in peace. That's what I thought I was doing when we were in those negotiations. I believe in justice, if that means speaking out for Palestinian rights, for Palestinian freedom, against what we see right now, then that's what I'm going to do. And yes, there were experiences I had when I lived there, when I was in an official capacity, when I was in an unofficial capacity, there was exposure to, to Palestinians, also, of course, exposure to Jewish Israel. I personally believe that Israelis can never have security until Palestinians have security. That equation 
the equation that you can impose a regime of structural violence on another people. You can deny another people their basic rights and you will live with your own security. That equation never works. I would say there is, and I hope one day, Palestinians, of course, but also Jewish Israelis experience the idea of how liberating it can be to no longer be an oppressor. Because when you're oppressing people, you know in the back of your mind that you are generating a desire for retribution. You can't actually sleep securely at night if you know what you are doing. So actually, I think it's in the service of... Can you give us, was there an incident? Is there an example, something that happened that you can share with us that made you want to speak out? There are many things. I'll I'll tell you one thing, Doreen. One of the things I was involved with in 1999, there was an election in which Ehud Barak came to power in Israel. It It was a strange moment in Israeli politics. I won't bore you with the details, but the electorate at that moment had two votes one to vote for a political party, and one to directly elect a prime minister. They've since abandoned that strange hybrid system. The thing that I was working on in that election was how could we get the Palestinian citizens of Israel, the 1948 community, the almost 20% of Israelis who are Palestinian, to support Ehud Barak in the direct election for the prime minister. I worked in that community throughout that election. About 96% of that community who voted, not all voted, voted for Ehud Barak. And after the election victory, it was okay. How are we going to work with the parties? Because they also voted for primarily parties representing the interests of Palestinian citizens of Israel. How are we going to work with those political parties? Unfortunately, I witnessed the dismissive attitude, not being interested in how we would then deliver for that constituency. There were many, many eye-opening moments. That was one of them. And it's important also just to remember that there is that community inside Israel who are often forgotten when one thinks about Palestinians. Look, back to my first question that I started with. What does the path to peace look like for you right now? I mean, Oslo led to nowhere. Oslo was a failure. Undoubtedly. Let's talk about that perhaps just for one moment. Oslo was predicated on the idea that if the Palestinians accepted and recognized Israel, and if the Palestinians accepted a state on just 22% of the land, that Israel would end the occupation. I'm not saying that was a just peace. I'm not saying that was a perfect peace. It was something that the PLO accepted. It perhaps gave us a way forward. Looking back, and probably at the time as well, it would have been so wise of the Israeli side to have said, here is a historic opportunity. Let's be large. Let's go the extra mile. But instead, in those negotiations, it was about grinding down the Palestinians. 
not accepting just 78%, but also a bit more land, but also making sure that East Jerusalem couldn't really be a Palestinian capital, that the Palestinians wouldn't be able to... I could go on. By the way, some years later, the Arab League then produces the Arab Peace Initiative. Again, Israel gets to yes, but decides that it, its answer is unfortunately going to be no. And one crucial lesson for me from that period, which is hyper-relevant to where we are today, in order to get to the finishing line, perhaps, and we can't know, we can't know the counterfactual if the Israeli Prime Minister at the time, Yitzhak Rabin, hadn't been assassinated by a militant Jewish nationalist extremist. But perhaps to get to that finishing line, we needed the United States the world, but this is a moment of, of unipolarity, right? This is after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Israel needed to be held accountable when it didn't come forward with a serious negotiating proposal, when it continued to build settlements, when it violated those accords. It wasn't held accountable. And, and I highlight that one specific component because I don't think we could possibly have got to that finishing line unless there was a willingness to leverage some pressure on Israel. And that's the journey we've been on ever since, Doreen. Because ever since then, Israel has, has been given more and more impunity. There has been no cost and consequence. And then we get to today. You get to an Israeli government with people who openly proclaim ethnic cleansing, eradicationism, and you get to what you see in Gaza. And Impunity has been the handmaiden to extremism. So where does this leave, leave us? Where does it leave things? First of all, one thing that has to be absolutely clear is that the architecture of how we've gone about trying to make peace is inadequate, is not fit for purpose. And by that, I primarily mean the monopoly that the United States has had around peacemaking. I wish it weren't so. I think America has done a huge disservice to its own national interest, but that is the reality. But we don't live in the world of the 1990s. We don't live in a unipolar American moment. Geopolitics is shifting. So that's one thing. We have to make sure that any future peace effort, there is the engagement not only of the region, and the region needs to engage in different ways. I talked about Israeli impunity. The greatest moment of success for the Israeli mission to marginalize the Palestinians was the Normalization Accords. That, I think, gave the biggest boost to Netanyahu's belief that he could crush the Palestinians and get away with it. So we need a different architecture with the region, but also with global South actors, which I think is hugely important. The other thing I would say is things look incredibly bleak. I, I find it hard to, to confront what's going on in Gaza every day. I'm often watching your channel. But this has been an incredibly disruptive moment. And I don't want to spread false optimism. 
But against the backdrop of such bleak times, perhaps this disruptive moment where everything has been turned on its head will cause people to stare into the abyss, because that's where we are right now, certainly for Palestinians. But I would argue that Israel has proved how insecure it is when it continues down this path. I don't think it's going well militarily even. I think Israel's capacities in asymmetric warfare are being challenged. So the hope is that as we stare into this abyss, we can turn this around. And that's not going to happen quickly. First, we have to stop what's currently going on in Gaza. But then we're going to have to design a very, very different way forward. Because, Daniel, I mean, you have issues uh, such as... Um, you know, these are final status issues when it comes to the Palestinians, like the status of Jerusalem, like the Israeli settlements, like uh, security, as well as w water rights for Palestinians, Palestinians' right of return, of course, a very important one. Oslo didn't address any of those, or they, Oslo kind of muddied the waters when it came to these final sta status issues. We don't hear anybody talking about them right now. Well, let's be very clear. Prime Minister Netanyahu set himself a task. He wasn't alone. I don't want to pretend that this is a, a, a one-man project. But he set himself a task to destroy the possibility of two states. There were plenty of aiders and abettors in that mission. He has gone a very long way towards succeeding in that respect. Now, we're constantly expecting the Palestinians, the constant demand from the Palestinians is, will you recognize, will you accept? What about on the Israeli side? As you said, all of those issues are no longer addressed. For me, that means we have to fundamentally rethink this. Either that's about going, going to deoccupation with genuine Palestinian sovereignty, not dressing up some Bantustan and pretending it's a state by putting a little flag on it. We either have to go about that a different way, or we can acknowledge that Israel has created one political space. And if it's going to be one political space, which is not inevitable, but if it's going to be one political space, the only demand and the thing Israel should be held to account for is there has to be equality. Okay, so let me ask you this. Do you believe that Palestinians have a right to return? Do you believe that I, as a Palestinian, whose father is from Haifa, left in 1948, was kicked out during the Nakba? Does he have a right to return? And do I, you, Daniel Levy? I do not think that as someone who never came from that part of the world, my family escaped, one on my mother's side, escaped the Holocaust my father's side, from Eastern Europe. How can I possibly have the right to go and live there if someone indigenous to that land whose family was driven from there does not have that right? So that's a yes. I think you could say that. Okay, let's move on, Daniel. Another important topic, I know you speak out about this a lot as well, which is uh, the rise of anti-Semitism, as well as the rise in Islamophobia. Look, the space for tolerance is shrinking at a very, very worrisome rate right around the world. Um, we see moves by the Israeli government and others to conflate 
anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. So first, on this issue of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, what do you think motivates people to attack Muslims and Jews against the backdrop of this conflict in particular? What worries me is we live at a time where intolerance is on the increase. We see how debates in the West around immigration are dripping with, with hatred. In its own, we live in a climate crisis. It, there's only going to be more movement of people around the world. And against this backdrop, if there's one thing we should learn from history, is intolerance tends not to stop at the border of one particular minority. It tends to sweep across the board. I think it's crazy that we cannot be in a joint struggle against this intolerance, racism, prejudice, as Jewish communities and Muslim communities. We need to be in that space together. But then you have this phenomenon. Undoubtedly, some people who criticize Israel are doing it from an anti-Semitic animus. But the vast majority of what is going on is legitimately standing up for the rights of a people who, to be quite honest, don't give a damn who their oppressor is. They are not against Israel because Israel calls itself a Jewish state. They're against what Israel is doing because of what it is doing. I understand that from the perspective of the state of Israel, it makes sense in their statecraft to deploy anti-Semitism in the defense of what Israel does. So if you're a state and you know that your policies violate international law, are oppressive, meet the international legal definition of constituting a regime of apartheid, as defined not just by Palestinians, but by Israeli human rights NGOs, by the international blue chip human rights community. If you know all of that, and you know that your plan isn't to change it, then what argument would you rather be having? Why are you running an apartheid regime? Or why is the person making that accusation doing so from a position of anti-Semitism? So Israel has tried to fuel this attempt to define anti-Semitism in a way which basically criminalizes criticism of Israeli policies. Is this sustainable? I do not think so. I think my, the Jewish community has taken a, a terrible wrong turn in going down this path because we face sometimes real anti-Semitism. You see the outrage, which I share, amongst, we're a minority, I don't want to pretend otherwise, but the outrage that we feel that this is being done in our name the outrage we feel that the values that we held m most dear when we say never again or when we were brought up with a Jewish ethic are being totally trodden underfoot. But we also think it's dangerous for our community. So here's the thing. It's the year 5,784 in the Jewish calendar this year. It's year 76 of Israel. 
we have been around for thousands of years if you believe that date. This has become a threat to Jewish well-being, the way that this issue is being played with and weaponized, and the way Israel is making alliances with some of the worst anti-Semites, Viktor Orban in Hungary, white nationalists in America, white nationalists across Europe. They're a threat to my community. They're a threat to your community. This is the worst possible way. Anyone who thinks that this ends well for the Jewish community apparently didn't go to History 101. Okay, thank you so much, Daniel Levy. Appreciate your time. Thank you. This episode was produced in partnership with the Islam and Muslims Initiative, an international platform that connects Muslims and non-Muslims in the realms of religion, politics, business, media, academia, and civil society.